0: All right, good morning, Mercy Hill. It's so good to see you. I actually don't see you, but you see me. Uh, Good morning to you. Uh, I'm John Lugo. I'm one of the members here at Mercy Hill. Been here for close to five years. I'm so excited and and honored to be bringing you God's Word today. Um, Just as a little bit of background, uh, we'll be in the book of James today. Uh, So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and take those out um, if you have your electronic device, go ahead and turn it to James itself uh, there in the app. We're actually gonna start at the end of James chapter one uh, and march our way through the next seven verses in chapter two. Some of you probably remember that it was, I think over a year ago now that we started our trek through James. And so every few months when I have the opportunity to preach, I do crack this part of the Bible back open. And I realize that it's been a while since we've been in James, so just know that if you want any review from the last sermon or two, um, you can find those on our website at mercyhillchurch.org under the resources tab. But today we will be continuing through the next set of verses starting at the end of chapter one. Uh, James can be found near the back of your Bibles uh, just before Revelation and the epistles of John and Peter. Uh, For those of you that are tuning in today from the watch party, Welcome, so glad you're here. If you're visiting, uh, so glad you're visiting. I want to mention just that there's a Bible app on the right side of the screen that you can use so that if you don't own a Bible or if you don't have the Bible app on your phone, that's another way you can pull up the Word of God and have it in front of you. Um, So before I jump into the text, I'd like to pause and just let everyone know that uh, this text and this sermon can make some of you feel a little bit uncomfortable. Um, We'll be going through some tough ideas this morning, ideas around social justice, um, with some specifics around relevant current events. So if you're watching with your kids, just know that this sermon may be rated more along the lines of PG-13, not because of any kind of inappropriate language or anything lewd, uh, but rather it's just going to be a lot of intensity and weight with today's message. So I only share this up front uh, because, parents, if you... If you want to watch this first before watching and potentially discussing it as a family, look, I I totally get it. Um, On Sundays, I normally watch the watch party with my wife, Christina, and my five-year-old daughter, Josephine. So I would appreciate a similar sort of warning going into a text like this. And also, I just didn't want anyone to be caught off guard. Um, But as a whole church, we do need to hear the word of God concerning racial harmony and partiality. Uh, Just one more thing. Uh, So it was actually back in the beginning of May um, that I was scheduled to preach on these verses on this day. And it was at that time um, that none of these events with protests and police brutality had even occurred. And yet here we are um, entering into a text that centers itself at the heart of the issue of social and racial justice. So as we go through our text today, I hope that you are as equally as amazed at God's timing as I was during all of my prep for today. So, um, so yeah, I invite you to turn with me to James 1, and let's go ahead and read starting in verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Chapter two, verse one. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, even now, as I just reread your word, knowing the the weight with which James wrote this, uh, to his brothers and to his sisters, he He didn't write this lightly he saw an injustice that was happening in the church to the people I call themselves the sons and the daughters of the most high God a desire to one show them the sin the sin of partiality that exists in all of us but to God a step forward a step out of the sin a way that we can look to the God of glory, Jesus Christ, and know that there is a way that we don't have to be stuck in our, our prejudices, our biases, our partial beliefs. God, I just thank you that, um, that your word is, um, is one that just pierces the hearts of men and women, that it's one that speaks truth to each and every person who picks it up, And God, most importantly, I'm just thankful that your word is one that saves. It's one that saves uh, this sinner and that saved so many sinners uh, to come to the throne of grace and to call you Abba, Father. We thank you, God. I pray that you would be the one that would speak this morning. You would be the one to be glorified. That you would just use me as another tool, another instrument to share what it is you would have this church and anyone else listening to hear. We love you, God. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen, amen. All right, so um, so we're getting back into the book of James, and I'm just gonna jump right in because we have a lot to cover. Uh, and I'm actually gonna start today with, with a narrative that likely most of us are familiar with. It's a narrative about a man named George Floyd. Um, and by this point, the name is likely familiar for Uh, for most of us, and many of us have heard about the news of all the protests across the nation and even in our own city to remember this man and the way that he died. But I wonder um, how many of us are familiar with the details from that horrible and fateful day on May 25th, 2020. Now, we're going to get into quite a bit of detail here because, um, well, the details matter. And my concern is that issues like these can sometimes feel safer and less offensive to some of us when we only take in general information um, or only the details that matter to us. Maybe it's watching our one and only news station that reinforces our inherent bias or, or catching the headlines so we stay in the know that something happened to someone on, on some date and, and that's why some people are unhappy. Or perhaps it even means staying oblivious altogether and not wanting to form an opinion out of fear that it'll offend someone. Well friends, if if God has counted every hair in our head, if God knows our sitting down and our rising up, if God truly knows the hearts of his people, all of his people, believer or not, then it would suffice it to say that the details of this death and George Floyd's death matter to God. They matter to George's family and George's friends, and so they should matter to us. Especially as we try to understand and bring to life this idea of partiality that James talks about in chapter two. Keeping things ambiguous or just at a numbers level doesn't do justice to to the life and soul of George Floyd. And please keep in mind that I'm sharing these details partially because I want us really to come to grips with this idea of partiality that James talks about what it means and the effects it has on our society across racial, gender, and and socioeconomic lines. Uh, I hope you don't get the notion that I think that all officers are bad. This is just completely untrue. I still have a high regard for our police force and I believe they will regain the public's trust in time. So just stay with me here this morning. Here are the facts as we know them. Uh, George Floyd, an African-American man, visited a convenience store, Cup Foods, in Minneapolis, Minnesota on May 25th, Memorial Day. It was a store that George frequented often. It's actually reported that he even knew the store owner by name. This was confirmed by the store owner himself. But on that day, on May 25th, it wasn't the store owner that was working the cash register. It was a teenage employee This teenage employee suspected Mr. Floyd of handing over a fake $20 bill to pay for a pack of cigarettes. And after Mr. Floyd refused to hand back the cigarettes to the employee, after being asked more than once, the teenage employee called the police to report the incident. Shortly after the call, two police officers arrived at the Cup Foods, and Mr. Floyd was sitting with two other people in a parked car around the corner. After approaching the car, one of the officers, um, Officer Thomas Lane, pulled out his gun and ordered Mr. Floyd to show his hands. Officer Lane put his hands on Mr. Floyd, pulled him out of the car, to which Mr. Floyd actively resisted being handcuffed. But once handcuffed, uh, Mr. Floyd became compliant and Officer Lane explained he was arresting George for passing counterfeit currency it was when the officers tried to put George Floyd into their squad car that, um, that a struggle ensued. And according to the, to the report, uh, Mr. Floyd stiffened up. He fell to the ground and told the officers he was claustrophobic. And then, the name that some of us know pretty well at this point because of all the news that's been around this individual, Officer Derek Chauvin arrived at the scene Officer Chauvin and other officers were involved in further attempts to put Mr. Floyd into the police car. And during, it was during this attempt that Officer Chauvin pulled George Floyd out of the passenger side of the vehicle, causing him to fall to the ground. George lay there, face down, still, in handcuffs. As the other officers restrained Mr. Floyd, uh, Officer Chauvin placed his left knee between George's head and neck, while two other officers placed their knees on George's ribs and waist. For eight minutes and 46 seconds, Officer Chauvin kept his knee on George Floyd's neck. So I want that to sink in. For eight minutes and 46 seconds, a man placed his knee on another man's neck. Even after several pleas from Mr. Floyd, when he told officers, I can't breathe, or please, 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 with the little air that was left in his lungs, the knee was not removed. And it was about six minutes into that period, George Floyd became non-responsive. And in videos of the incident, this is when Mr. Floyd fell silent. Uh, Bystanders urged the officers to check his pulse. Officer King, one of the officers part of the squad, did just that. Officer King checked Mr. Floyd's right wrist, um, but he couldn't find a pulse. Yet, Officer Chauvin still did not remove his knee from the neck of George Floyd. It wasn't until two minutes later that Officer Chauvin removed his knee from George Floyd's neck. And motionless, Mr. Floyd rolled onto a gurney, and he was taken to the Hennepin County Medical Center in an ambulance. He was pronounced dead around an hour later. Friends, um, these details still rattle me. I've, I've read this, I don't know how many times, and rehearsed this, I don't know how many times. They still rattle me, um, and they should rattle you. Uh, this incident started as a normal police report about the suspected, suspected passing of a counterfeit bill and ended in the death of a black man by a white police officer. There is no other way to view this incident than one that exhibits total unequivocal partiality and crosses the line into racial violence. Yet these horrific events um, are sadly not isolated events. They represent systemic issues of racism, inequality, and injustice that we've all seen in our lifetime and read about in history books. We can, we can look at the countless recent events, ranging from Ahmaud Aubrey, who was out for an afternoon jog and was shot dead by two white men, one a retired police officer, to Breonna Taylor, who was shot at least eight times by police officers in her apartment for no crime whatsoever to Sean Reed, who was shot dead by police after fleeing from his vehicle, to even much closer to home, Oscar Grant, who was shot dead by police in a BART station over one decade ago. In each and every case, uh, police officers went too far with their use of deadly force against one notable skin color, black. And yes, this history of pain in the black community certainly goes even further back to events dating back to Rodney King and Dr. Martin Luther King. And and long before that, with the Jim Crow laws and even the founding of this country, friends, the, the degree of racial violence that has occurred in this country is deeply saddening. There's really no words to describe the atrocities that have taken place. The loss of human life is... Sad in itself but for that life to be needlessly snatched away at the hands of those that are called to serve and protect it just adds an extra layer of of pain and grief and again i want to repeat at this point i want to make it abundantly clear not all police officers are bad i truly believe that today as much as i did in any other time in my adult life public trust in our police force has been marred and it's going to take some pretty intentional efforts and time and patience from all sides to change that perception now if you're feeling some uneasiness in the pit of your stomach um, then just know that's a good thing it may be a feeling of disgust, of anxiety, or even sadness. And and this should be the posture of our hearts as we read James' letter this morning. Because this is what James wanted Jewish Christians to feel as he addressed the sin of partiality. He wants us to feel what it means to show partiality, the pain that undergirds it, and how we need the Lord's help to not fall prey to the enemy's lie, that it's okay to be A a little biased or it's okay to be a little bit racist or a little bit sexist we need to grapple with the issues that are going on in our hearts when we talk about partiality so we can better understand the lack of partiality that Christ had for all people especially us sinners who are now saved by grace this is the only way we can go out and truly love our neighbors as Christ loved us disgusting sinners we may be amen Uh, we're not done talking about george floyd and other tragedies in the black community and we'll circle back around uh to some of these stories later on this morning but just know but for now uh let's go and get to our text to understand james's points that he wants to illuminate in our hearts um as we read these verses you probably notice that they're, 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 screen, they're pretty instructional. Uh, James is seemingly giving us orders of what we should and shouldn't be doing when engaging with people around us. And he's directing his orders to the church community, Jewish Christians, not the world, because of the systemic issues he has seen in the church. Friends, James is writing this letter directly to you and to me. And in chapter two, he's really emphasizing this idea of partiality. So your first question is probably, what does James uh, exactly mean when he mentions partiality? So any quick Google search will show you that partiality means an unfair bias uh, in favor of one thing or person compared to another. In another sense, it means favoritism or bias or to even go so far, prejudice and discrimination. It's the unfair characterization Um, of a person, place, or thing, and putting it in rank order based on your opinion. Said another way, uh, someone or something has more worth, more value, more steam in your own eyes than someone or something else. And so it'll receive different and many times, obviously, better or worse treatment from you. This partiality, this is partiality, excuse me, it means that I am elevating something in my own eyes and lowering something else in my eyes. On the one hand, this person or this group has higher regard for me, and so I'll provide better treatment to them as opposed to the other people or the other group here on the other hand. And this is where James wants us to hone in as the partiality towards people around us. And in our text, James calls out two types of people One wearing a gold ring and fine clothing, and one man who is poor and wearing shabby clothing. And while the immediate context that James is addressing in this day was literally the sin of showing favoritism towards the rich and despising the poor, his words apply to all types of prejudice, whether it's based on economic status, on race, um, on gender, disability, or anything else. To favor some people and to disregard others based on outward factors is a terrible sin, period. And it's not only a sin that's outside the church, but it also has plagued the church going all the way back to James's day, and hence the reason why this is in his letter addressed to us, the church. Friends, partiality has plagued the church in every generation. Now, partiality can be seen as another form of pride. Either I know more than you, or even worse, I am more than you. My worth as a human being is greater than your worth. My life matters more than your life. And the Bible shows us that this pride, this disease of partiality that we carry in our fallen hearts is no surprise to God and is fully condemned by him. We'll look at the book. So let's, go, let's just go to the book of Genesis. Before God uh, floods the earth and restarts his covenant with Noah, we see God grieve. The scriptures say that he was grieved to his heart and he was sorry that he, made, that he had made man on the earth. And in Genesis 6 5, we read this The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This human partiality is what caused the first recorded murder with Cain and Abel, where Cain thought he deserved God's favor, as some would say even over the favor of his brother Abel. Cain wanted to be the favorite and desired to be noticed when compared to his sheep-raising brother, and we know that story doesn't end well for Abel. And this same partiality still fuels the prejudice that we see today all around us. And if you think that God doesn't take partiality seriously, we can look back to the early days of his law um, in Leviticus 19 to see the weight that God places on partiality. You don't don't have to turn there, but I'm going to read a few verses in Leviticus 19. Verse 10. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner I am the Lord your God the lesson here do not forget the poor and the sojourner also known as a traveler pursue holiness by giving graciously to the underserved and the wanderers In verse 13 you shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him the wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning you shall not curse deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind but you shall fear God I am the Lord your God the lesson here is just do not insult the disadvantaged and don't delay in paying fair wages to all of your employees equally verse 15 you shall do no injustice in court you shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor the lesson here is just no favoritism at all none whatsoever is permitted the poor and the esteemed are to be treated the same so we can see from early on god is clear you shall not show partiality favoritism bias or prejudice you shall all treat one another equally and so honor the lord your god so i I want us to start thinking about this early on so the thoughts can develop over the next 20 or so minutes that we have here this morning. So, so what is it for you? What causes you to show partiality to others? Notice I, I didn't say if you show partiality. I said, what causes you to show partiality, to show favoritism, to show prejudice, to show racism? Do you gravitate towards people that have a well-ordered life um, and cast those aside that got nothing else to live for except their addiction? Is that where you draw the line? Or perhaps you find favor in people who are accomplished and well put together while stiff-arming the people who haven't taken a hot bath in months and you can smell them from down the street. Are those the people you keep at arm's length or even further? Or just what about even something more simple that comes to mind? When you look at your friend group, your closest friends, are they all pretty homogenous? Same skin color, same heritage, same highly esteemed Bay Area job, same interests? Friends, it's, it's this partiality that we show to people around us that James is referring to. This is the sin of partiality that James is wanting to call out uh, and to mortify. Yes, certainly in the church, but also for us to be a testimony to Jerusalem, Judea, and the ends of the earth. Um, so that's, that's a ton of background, I know, um, but the elders and I just wanted to be sure that we bring this topic into the foreground to begin having the tough and awkward conversations that many of us shy away from. The church cannot, it cannot be apathetic about the injustices in our society, and we need to better understand our role as Christians, what to do, how to respond, and also to not fall prey to the enemy's schemes. Uh, The main point that I want to be able to I want all of us to walk away with today is this um, the sin of partiality shows favoritism based on riches race gender and a multitude of other factors but we must rise above this in our outward lives as well as in our hearts to live under the law of Liberty like James talks about which is to love our neighbor as we love ourselves That's a lot, I'm gonna repeat it one more time. So the sin of partiality shows favoritism based on riches, race, gender, and a multitude of other factors. But we must rise above this in our outward lives as well as in our hearts to live under the law of liberty, which is to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. All right. Let's going to connect some of these points to the text this morning. So I've broken things, I've broken things down into three headings. Uh, pretty easy to remember. They were easy for me to remember. Uh, hope that this is something that resonates with you and that you carry in your heart. Um, so first, we're going to look at the two classes. Second, we're going to look at the two seats. And finally, we're going to look at the two heart decisions. Two classes, two seats, two heart decisions. Let's go and get moving. All right, so you'll notice in chapter 2, verse 2, James, James points out two very distinct people with two very distinct outward appearances. So let's go ahead and look at verse 2. It reads, For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. I know it's strange to stop mid-sentence like that, uh, but we'll catch up to verses 3 and 4 in our next point in just a moment. So we're going super fast, I know that. Um, so we have two men, one wearing a gold ring and fine clothing, and a poor man in shabby clothing. Let's go and understand a few important factors, or facts rather, about the dress of James's day. Um, first off is the rings. So he calls out the gold rings because Jews commonly wore rings in those days to showcase their wealth. And a few people could actually, actually, rather, only few people, only few people uh, could aff- actually afford rings. Um, as a matter of fact, there's some reports that in James's day, the most flamboyant people wore rings on every single finger, except the middle finger, to show off their economic status. And if you're wondering why not the middle finger, um, in those times, the middle, middle finger was sometimes reserved for the wedding band during some Orthodox Jewish weddings. But let's go and go even further. So to go even further with with this attention grabbing ring stuff. There are historical sources that say that ring rental businesses existed during that time period. So some people would actually rent rings to act like they were part of an elite sought-after class that in actuality they had no rights to simply said they were living a lie. And and when the sun set or when the clock struck midnight, their life turned back into that nasty pumpkin that it was when the day started, with the rings back to their rightful owner and the person returned back to their normal status. The attention, the stardom, the fame, the recognition, all gone in a matter of an instant. Who would have thought that rings could define one's social standing so much? But James goes on. He then talks about the clothing of the first man. He describes the clothing as fine clothing there in verse 2. The original Greek context of the word here is meant to describe bright, shiny garments. It's actually the exact same word used when referring to the gorgeous garment that Herod's soldiers put on Jesus to mock him before his crucifixion. Let's go ahead and read that. So it's Luke 23, verse 11. And Herod with his soldiers treated him, Jesus, with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. This splendid clothing, this fine clothing, is a type of clothing reserved for a king. But not only a king, no, 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 no. So this language of fine clothing also references the way that angels were clothed, believe it or not. In Acts 10.30, we read this. And Cornelius said, four days ago about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. Friends, it was an angel that visited Cornelius and was wearing bright clothing, clothing that set the angel apart from anything else in that room. And and safe it to say, to describe angels as bright, vibrant, dazzling, splendid, or or any anything in our human vocabulary, none of those begin to actually give us the true sense of awe and wonder of when an angel appears how much their light fills a room, how much their vibrance fills, and every in-between color that her eyes have never seen. It just can't be compared to any earthly thing. And this is the same bright clothing from the angel. This is the same splendid royalty from Jesus. These are the same words, both the same Greek word that James uses in verse 2. To describe the fine clothing of the first man james is clearly pointing out that this man is walking into the assembly which by the way all an assembly means is a meeting of christians so this man is walking into the assembly decked to the nine which is still an understatement uh, and completely standing out from everyone else that's present this man's dress will be noticed by all who come into his general proximity now let's let's be clear on something here before we move on um james is not condemning the first man for his gold ring or his fine clothing i need to repeat this because i don't want anyone to misunderstand me this morning especially as we draw parallels back uh to current events james is not condemning the first man for his gold ring or his fine clothing clothing can be bright it can be flashy it can be sparkling If any of you know the ladies in my household, you know all too well that they all agree there can't be too much sparkle in any color. And sometimes I'm the victim of that glitter sparkle madness by getting it in what little hair I have left or sharing it with the earth around me uh, as the right gust of wind hits me. Honestly, with all the glitter in my household and the amount that gets on me, I sometimes feel like I leave my glory behind me as I round corners. You know, like almost the same way that God did with Moses. This is, this is way too much glitter, okay? Too much glitter, people, in my household is what I'm saying. So the question is, would James condemn my household for liking this, for, for liking this glitter, glitter sparkle madness too much? Um, I, I sure hope not. Otherwise, my family and I are, are just doomed. Um, no, instead, James is condemning the church's flattering reaction to it. But we'll loop back around to the church's response in just a moment. For now, let's let's take a look at the second man, the poor man in shabby clothing. So let's start at the man's status. He's poor. We're likely to assume this man during that time not only had little money, uh, but also little resources. He probably did not have the means to shower, uh, wash his clothes with any level of frequency, or even afford other clothes when he was planning to go into the assembly he certainly couldn't afford one of those ring rentals that we mentioned just a moment ago. James is literally describing the exact opposite of the first man. You see that? Instead of some bling on his fingers, the poor man only has dust and dirt to show on his fingers. Instead of flashy garments, he is clothing garments that could likely make your nose sting and your skin curl. James is taking one extreme with the first man, and using the totally opposite extreme with the poor man. It's not some fine detailed nuance of one is wearing a tie and the other isn't, or one has a handkerchief in his jacket pocket and the other left it at home. No, it is the polar opposite. And friends, this is how our brains work. We all create, every single one of us creates two classes. Every single one of us creates two classes. And I know what you're thinking. No, no, not not me, John. Not not me, never me. And I would say, yes, you. And by the way, me too. We all put people into buckets based on their appearance. Rich and poor, successful and not going to make it. Man and woman, white and non-white. There's no avoiding it. We're all prone to it from very early on in our lives, and we do it both consciously and subconsciously all the time. And I know this, I know this, because Mercy Hill, I do it. Me, a Latino, a married man with two little girls, a college-educated, growth-mindset kind of dude, a well-traveled person, both nationally and internationally, with exposure to many faiths and many ethnicities, a volunteer, a Christian. Friends, I share this short list of personal attributes not to say, hey, look at me, but, but rather because partiality crosses all boundaries, race, marital status, education, world-roundedness, volunteerism, Christ and non-Christ. You could almost liken the sin of partiality to this COVID-19 pandemic like the virus the sin of partiality doesn't care who you are you are susceptible to its stumble so so what's so wrong what's so bad about bucketizing people well the next set of verses begins to answer this question for us so let's go and look at that Uh, in the text we see now we see two class so we have seen two classes of people the extreme wealth and the extreme poor, but now let's look at the two seats that they are given. Let's go to read verses 2 through 4. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So first thing, why is the sitting and standing thing such a big deal? Um, Well, the the synagogues and assembly halls uh, in those days would generally only have benches around the outside wall uh, and maybe only a couple of benches up front. Um, Most of the congregation would either sit cross-legged on the floor or they stood because of the limited number of seats. These benches were normally reserved for people of status. And not to mention, they were also the seats that the Pharisees wanted the most. And so in our text, we see that the wealthy person is told to sit here in a good place, at a place of honor. Perhaps it was the front, maybe it was the outside wall. We don't exactly know. We're unsure of the exact location. But he is certainly sitting for sure, while the poor person is shown contempt and told either to stand, likely in the back, away from the rest of the congregants, or sit down at my feet like a servant. Now keep in mind, the rich man is given privileges only because of his perceived wealth, not anything he said, or people recognizing who he is, or or any other reason. Strictly because of his outward appearance, and in a polarizing way, The poor man is despised because because of his poverty, again, not because of anything he said or people recognizing him or any other reason, strictly because of his outward appearance. One man is given a good seat, the other is given a different seat, a less desirable seat, and all based solely on their different outward appearance. Such treatment, James says in verse four, is evil. But let's let's go to move beyond riches and apply this text to to race because there are parallels. So once upon a time, uh, here in America, we thought it right and justified to have separate but equal facilities for people based purely on the color of their skin. Separate, but equal. And this ranged from public schools to public bathrooms to public water fountains to park benches to train seats to bus seats to to the, the list goes on and on and on. And from the founding of this country in 1776 all the way to 1954 when the Supreme Court overturned the separate but equal doctrine, blacks and whites lived very separate lives. You could say they had two seats ingrained and many fabrics of society, and it was all due to their two classes, that is, the color of their skin, and for no other reason. 178 years as a nation, we allowed blatant racism to set the foundation of this country, and we did even worse for countless decades before that, when early British colonialism began claiming this land in the early 1600s. And you can imagine, it wasn't as if some switch was flipped on that day on May 17th, 1954, uh, w- when the Supreme Court uh, ruled that US state's laws establishing racial segregation in public schools were unconstitutional. No, we know the 60s and the 70s and the 80s and the 90s. Friends, we even know May 25th, 2020, there are still deep-seated passions against people of color. The road to undoing this racial injustice has been a long road. It's been a hard road, and guess what? The road continues. We can't expect for centuries, hundreds of years of injustice to change in just a matter of a few decades, but Christians, that's no excuse for us to not elevate this conversation and begin thinking of ways we can eliminate these two seats the actual physical two seats, and the two seats of our hearts. And ladies, don't think that I don't see the same injustices from your viewpoint as well. Um, The publicly condoned sexism and sexual violence, the unfair treatment with wages, the, the regard to treat women as objects, and just the overall lack of respect in the workplace and in public spaces towards women and all due to your class that is being a woman i want you to know that i um i empathize with your plight i truly do and i desire to learn more you have allies in this church starting first and foremost with the church leadership with allyship extending far beyond this into the church body racism sexism any type of prejudice in any form has no place among the saints and it certainly has no place at Mercy Hill in church these two seats are real we, we can't turn our faces away from it we can't deny it we should never justify it and we dare not excuse it we must must accept it we must confess our part to God and repent for our part because if not James gives his concern there in verse 4 that you have become judges with evil thoughts some translations even go as far as to say you have become judges with vicious intentions. Friends, we can't see the hearts of men as God does. We, we just can't uh, because we're not God. But to judge a man based on his outward appearance is to usurp the place of Jesus Christ in his glory as judge of all the earth. James didn't want the church to behave like the sinful world by catering to a preferred class while shunning the other class. But this is what happened in the Christian church in James's day. And it still exists today in congregations around the nation and around the world. All right, so this takes us to our last point, and then we'll, um, we'll start to wrap up. So we see James describe the two classes, then he describes the two seats, and now we deal with something a little bit more personal. It's our two hard decisions. So let's go and get some alignment here before we go, um, before we actually go, jump back into more discussion. We're going to look at verse one there in chapter two. So it reads, "My brothers, show no partialities. You hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory." So to understand this text, uh, we have to see where James is putting his emphasis. Yes, James is saying not to hold our faith in our Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism, and instead, he wants us to place our attention on Jesus Christ and namely, his glory. What do I mean by that? The glory of Christ is not something that can ever really be summed up, um, and certainly not in the short time that I have left. Uh, but I will say that the glory of Christ is the glory of his perfect humanity and his full deity in one person it is his superiority to and fulfillment of the law and the prophets it is his atoning death his resurrection and his ascension friends the glory of Christ encapsulates all that is God himself plus the forgiveness of our sins through his death on a cross a death that he never deserved. This is where James wants, us to fo- wants our focus to be, because when our focus is on the glory of Christ, it addresses our heart problem of partiality, of favoritism, of prejudice, in one particular way. It gets us to see how petty our partiality really is, while also recognizing the gravity of its impact on other people it gets us to see how petty that partiality really is while also recognizing the gravity of its impact on other people it doesn't matter it really doesn't matter whether that partiality is between the rich and the poor black and white or men and women when we exalt people based on their wealth on their race or their gender we actually rob glory from Jesus Christ Rather than exalting the rich or a particular race or a particular gender simply based on their outward appearance, we should exalt the supreme glory of Christ alone. Now, we shouldn't conclude that James is saying that all rich people are bad and that all poor people are good. And the same goes with race and with gender. Some rich people are very godly and some poor people are very evil. But James's point is, is that any judgments based on outward factors alone are wrong judgments, because they do not discern the heart. Only God can judge the heart. And so we are wrong to usurp his place as judge. However, focusing on the glory of Christ helps to put our partiality in its proper place. Now I think we can all agree that when our heart is not pointed to, to God the Almighty, maker of heaven of, maker of heaven and earth, all that is seen and unseen. We point our heart to his creation. And when we do that, we can't help ourselves but to become partial to what we deem as good. And so enter the posture of our hearts. Are they pointed to God or are they pointed to the world? There really is no in-between here. Are they pointed to the one that freely gives every good gift to his children? Or are they pointed to something in creation that promises good gifts but will ultimately disappoint and just turn to dust. And what's interesting is that this partiality will normally flow from one of two heart-level sins. One that is craving human glory or one that lives in fear. One that is craving human glory or one that lives in fear. Alright, so so here it all is. Let's put everything out here on the table. The first step of the slippery slope is that we have these two classes that all of us create as we go about our daily lives. Most if not all of us struggle with not throwing people into one of these two classes. One class is one that I will grow towards and one that I'll remain distant from. One that I will exalt and one that I will show disdain. The next step of the slippery slope, we have two seats most if not all of us struggle with not putting that lower class in a lower seat one of a servant we may only do it with the slight mention of a word or we may do it by other worse more sinister means all the while exhorting and giving the better seat to another person finally we get to our heart level decision Will we give in to craving human glory? Will we give in to fear and show partiality towards that brother or sister because of of the color of their skin and because it's different? Or perhaps because they carry less wealth than you or or perhaps because of their gender? Or will you trust Jesus as the Lord of glory? Will Will you look to the one that can pull you out of your lowly estate and bring you into a safe place and begin to forgive you for the sins that you confess, because let us not forget that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He is faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. unrighteousness. That's 1 John 1, 9. I can guarantee you, Mercy Hill, that it'll, it'll be from the lowliest state and that safe place the Lord will meet you, help you to showcase the fruits of the Spirit towards humanity, and that is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, not partiality. Mercy, not racial prejudice. Remember, it is faith in Christ that brings us all into God's family, whatever our backgrounds. And it is faith in Christ that continues to save each and every one of us, each and every day on the side of eternity. So I'm going to skip forward to the conclusion, and we'll, we'll wrap things up here. Um, let's take a look at verses 5 and 6, and we'll bring things to a close. So verse 5 in chapter 2 reads, uh, listen my beloved brothers has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him but you have dishonored the poor man are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called and by the way add to that list orphans and widows From chapter 1 verse 27 Church Jesus has a special care and concern for the poor the marginalized the underserved the orphans the widows the blind the deaf the castaways the hated we see it all throughout his earthly ministry and now Jesus certainly offers his love and forgiveness to all people of all walks of life But Jesus' primary concern is always the heart of his people, not their outward appearance. Those that are poor in spirit and thirst for the kingdom of God, those that realize how short life is and see their need for eternal life, by choosing these people, God magnifies the riches of his grace towards those that are spiritually bankrupt and have a desire to be filled with the spiritual riches in Christ. But it had to come at a price. Mercy Hill, Jesus had to be the poor beggar that the world put into the lower seat and condemned him for his class. Even though he welcomed all classes into his fold, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the rich, the poor, the children, the women, the sick, the deaf, the lame, even, even the thief on a cross. The most impartial the most impartial person who ever lived became the victim of our unjust bias and prejudice for being who he was, the king of heaven and earth. He had to be the homeless servant that was given the lesser seat, journeying from land to land with nowhere to rest his head. He had to be dragged into court, accused of crimes that he never committed, to take on the full weight of our sin and allow his name to be blasphemed. He had to be the perfect sacrifice that was brutally beaten, hung from a cross and died a horrific death. He had to be the one to do all of this so that, so that being rich in mercy, he could take our guilty verdict and issue us by name a not guilty verdict and life everlasting so that he can encourage us comfort us give us the greatest honor and that is to be called a son and a daughter of the Most High God without this price being paid we have no salvation we have no faith all we have are our works and and so yes let us look to our Savior to see how he fulfilled all that James talks about in these verses let's look to Christ As the Lord of glory let us trust him as the one who is gloriously strong and gloriously wise and gloriously loving let Christ not partiality be our glory and all the glory that we ever need let's pray Heavenly Father um, we just come to you with with broken hearts We see all of the the hurt and the pain around us. We know that none of this is new, God. We know this pain has existed for the black community, specifically, for centuries. God, we know that this pain has existed for all of humanity since the beginning of time. So, God, we pray first and foremost, would would your kingdom come? Would your kingdom come? Would we rejoice and knowing that you are supreme over all these things. And God, somehow, some way, in the midst of this terror and this carnage, um, would you be glorified? Would we glorify the name of Jesus? God, we do want to pray for George Floyd. May his soul rest in peace and may he even be with you, God. I don't, I don't know where his heart was, but I pray that he's rejoicing with you and the rest of the saints. I pray for his family, for his friends, and just the pain that they're having to go through every single day, that the news is still on, just reporting on George Floyd, and that there's so many different angles and so many different videos that, that they're having to submit themselves to. God, it's, it's hard. I can't even imagine being on that side of the equation. And God, I want to pray for our police force overall, Would you give them sound judgment, would you give them wisdom of how to respond to these peaceful protesters? Would you give them wisdom and judgment of how to respond to those that aren't being peaceful and give them discernment between the two? God, much like Paul was in the Bible that persecuted Christians and you rescued him and made him an incredible vessel, God, would you rescue Officer Chauvin. We pray for him by name. We pray for where his heart is right now. Wherever he is, God, would he see the light of Christ? Would he see that there is forgiveness and love to be found at the cross? Would he confess and would he repent for what he's done? And God, would you make him another vessel of grace for your purpose? Can we look back on these days, God, decades or centuries from now, and see your hand specifically in the lives of those that have persecuted the underserved? We know you can do it, God. We know it's a prayer that you want to answer because we know you want to be glorified, and you do this all the time through your people. We know you don't need us, but you use us in this way. We love you, God. We're so thankful that we get to gather as a church body that we have this medium of technology to do this. And God, would you just make this conversation of social justice something that none of us shy away from and that we all admit even our own shortcomings and our own sins in this. We love you, Father. pray these things in the Lord Jesus' name. Amen.